0: Hello and welcome to Becoming Educated, the podcast that aims to explore the secrets to great teaching in our classrooms. I'm Darren Leslie and each week I discuss things that will hopefully make an impact in your school with guests from classroom teachers to head teachers and everyone in between and beyond in the education sector. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Becoming Educated. And this time, I welcome back the Ensers, Mark and Zoe Enser. And this time will be Mark's third appearance on Becoming Educated and Zoe's second. I'm absolutely delighted that Mark is the first person to reach the hat trick of appearances on Becoming Educated. Zoe was a classroom English teacher for over 20 years, as well as head of department, and school leader in charge of improving teaching and learning. She is now lead English specialist advisor for Kent with the Education People. Mark has been a geography teacher for the best part of two decades, as well as a head of department and research lead. Mark is the author of Making Every Geography Lesson Count and Teach Like Nobody's Watching, and is a Tes columnist. Together, they have written the excellent Fiorella and Mayor Generative of Learning in Action as part of the in Action series from JodCat. Cat Educational, and their latest book, The CPD Curriculum with Crown House. And we unpack the CPD curriculum in today's episode. We begin by exploring what is CPD and why we need to think about a CPD curriculum. I also ask them why CPD matters and what impact poorly delivered CPD has. We discuss the intent of our CPD curriculum and what content should be included in CPD curriculum and how we should come to that conclusion on what content should be considered. We discuss the difference between novice and expert teachers and how they need diff to be taught differently. And we discuss COBE's experiential learning cycle as they describe it as second to none as a planning approach for CPD. We then dive into effective whole staff sessions, a little bit on practitioner inquiry, coaching, specifically instructional coaching, and how we can make CPD meaningful by making it subject specific. I really enjoyed this episode with Mark and Zoe, and I'm sure you will too, but before we dive in please consider buying me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash dnlesley to support the ongoing work of becoming educated. Now, without further ado, further to do, let's dive right into my interview with Mark and Zoe Enser. Mark and Zoe Enser, thanks so much for coming back on to the Becoming Educated podcast. How are you both?
1: Good, thank you. Thank you for asking us.
0: Yeah, we're good. No, it's definitely, you've, you've written another absolute cracker of a book. Your, your um, output is fantastic. And, and Zoe, I've been reading on Twitter that you've got a, a Shakespeare book forthcoming, is that
1: correct? Uh, I have, yeah, I don't know if I have to publishers or work, but my original deadline was January, but once I got the go-ahead, uh, I just kind of got on with it, and uh, I'm now sitting on something that looks like a pretty final draft for my end, and I've just sent it off uh, to get a forward by uh, someone, it's a secret at the moment, but um, it is someone who's very well respected in the world of Shakespeare, so fingers crossed <laughs> that all comes Christopher to Christopher Marlowe?
0: <laughs> 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 Fantastic. Well, I, I'm sure that that book will be absolutely well received as well. And um, so, we haven't spoken since um, you published Generative Learning in Action as part of the in action series. So, what have you been up to since then? Uh, I was gonna
1: say, Matt Marsh is literally lots of teaching, an awful lot of teaching, um, lots of kind of getting out there and meeting people and seeing different people in schools and uh, obviously discussing CPD as much as we can, which has become, certainly it's a bit of an obsession of mine and has been for a number of years. So that's really good to kind of hear what people are doing and and how we can perhaps develop some of that.
0: Yeah, uh, go ahead Mark. No, you want much else to say?
2: (laughs) Busy, getting through COVID, trying (laughs) to survive 2021?
1: <laughs> That's been keeping us busy doing a doing a master's.
0: Yeah. And getting them yeah. with that. Got a garden room built. We're all good. So yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. The garden room on oh, Twitter. I'm so jealous of it. It looks absolutely fantastic. And obviously, you just received your new sofa and it looks so comfortable. What a relaxing space to, <laughs> to sit back and do. Well, let's get into it. You've just published um your new book, The C P D Curriculum with uh, Crown House. That's
1: great. That's right, show.
0: yeah. Crown House. So let's get in get into the nitty-gritty already. So What is CPD and why do we need to think about a CPD curriculum? Um,
1: Well, I think, you know, the the first thing is it's about teacher learning and uh, that's something which I hope kind of came through in the book as well, that it's, um, CPD has been a bit disconnected certainly from my perspective in the past and it's often been these kind of ad hoc um, sessions and you weren't quite sure how it fitted to the reality of your classroom and You might respect and value the ideas that are being presented, but ultimately you're sitting there thinking about your planning. Um,
0: But I think, you know,
1: real high quality CPD is about changing the way we're thinking about things, changing the knowledge that that we've got and and kind of creating new knowledge around it. And uh, ultimately then changing our practice, which can have the benefits to the students that we're working with. So um, for me, that's really what CPD is. I don't know if you want to add
2: anything there. I, I think it's an interesting question, what is CPD? Because I think you've got, what is CPD and what could CPD be? Which is a whole other letter. Mm. But you kind of got, what is it at the moment? Which, as you say, it's just this jumble of professional development opportunities stuff which schools feel they should offer. And then what it should be is a, a curriculum for teacher learning. And, and it should be a curriculum for teacher learning that exists with the same amount of thought and detail and, and planning that we would give to our pupils
1: And I think that's really what prompted us, you know, we'd spent, you know, as heads of department um, or, or kind of CPD leads, we'd spent quite a lot of time thinking deeply about our curriculum, both over the years, but then more recently, there's been that sharp focus on it. And we were really considering, well, what can we take in terms of the lessons that we've learned from this and thinking about our curriculum in this way and apply that to teacher learning? to then have the benefits that we want from this. You know, we, we invest quite a lot of time in schools, into CPD in various forms, and it doesn't always have that impact. And I think is that really depressing figure from the OECD um, research from a few years ago, where they asked teachers about a uh, transformational impact of CPD on their practice. And it was less than 1% uh, in that particular survey. And I know that Becky Allen sort of replicated that a few years later, and asked uh, people what impact CPD had had on, on their classroom, and, and it was 40% that said it had, had an impact, which um, is a little bit more positive, but equally that is, that's a worry, because as I say, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about CPD or putting on CPD, but perhaps what we hadn't done is really thought about it deeply enough before we get to that stage of delivery, and that's where thinking about it as a curriculum really helps me anyway.
0: Certainly. I, I love the, the dedication to the book where you said this book is dedicated to every teacher who has ever sat in a hall after school and thought there must be a better way. And I love what you are saying there about we think so deeply about children's learning and their curriculum. Why not do the same for our teacher learning? Now Which brings me to my, to my next question then. Um, why does CPD matter for teacher learning?
1: Well, CPD really matters because we know that having fantastic teachers really matters. And there's a wealth of research out there um, that that looks at that. Um, If you look at the work of uh, Robert Coe or um, Harry Fletcher Wood and Zucullo that came out last year, we know that if we can develop teachers to be better, and and to use that William William phrase, not because they're not good enough, but because we can all be better, then that has a positive impact on our students and we know that particularly there there are groups of students, there are disadvantaged students where they are not getting the outcomes that we want and they are not getting those opportunities that come from those outcomes so improving the quality of teaching can really have that impact there. The other part of that as well is is if we're working with those teachers that we've got and we know that there's a recruitment and retention issue as well and working with those teachers and makes it much more likely that they're going to want to stay in the profession and stay in our schools and work with us on that. And that makes it easier too. Um, The Sutton Trust um, research as well, the 2014, you know, they were pointing out that you can have these fantastic interventions that we do where teachers work with small groups and one-to-one. But if you're working with your staff and working with your teachers, the developments of the classroom and what's happening five hours a day It's much more cost effective because you work with a group of, say, 50, you know, even 100 teachers and the impact of that work you've done with them there could well be impacting on a thousand students or or beyond. Um, And and ideally, that's what we want. So, you know, great teachers make a difference. So if we want that, we need to invest in their development and support them to, to be even better.
0: Definitely, that investment in, in teachers is definitely what the, a, a well planned CPD curriculum be. So, Mark, can I come to you? Um, what impact does poorly delivered CPD have on teaching? Um, one of the it,
2: it, lots of impacts. What one, one of the big ones that I found over the years is it creates those kinds of lethal mutations. Um, there's kind of two approaches to CPD where, where CPD goes wrong. One is where you just deliver lots and lots of theory to teachers uh, in terms of what they should do. So you say to teachers, you should go and do this, you should go and do this, you should go and do this. And then you expect them to go off and do it. So, you know, we're going to have a session on, you should go and do retrieval. History. You should make a knowledge or so whatever it is, that's the thing. And the problem there is that people don't understand why they don't understand the underlying thinking. And so they go and do it badly. They go and try and implement it. Um, but because they don't know the reason for it, they don't know what the structure should really look like. So if you've had a session on, you must go and do quizzes, do quizzes like this, but you don't understand the thinking, then does it matter if they look in their books for the answers? Does it matter if the quiz is actually just a settlement at the beginning of the lesson and it's on their TV shows they watched last night? If you just think the quiz is the important thing, then you're going to start making mistakes for the other approach to CPD, which goes wrong, is where you don't really value professional development at all in a formal sense. And you think that teachers will just get better if you leave them on their own. And as a teacher of 19 years, it's, a, it's an idea which I would love to believe. You know, I'd love to go, just leave me and I, and I will take care of everything myself. But we know it's not true. We know that teachers improve for a short time and they plateau because you just do the same thing over and over again. So I might be a teacher of 19 years, or I might be a teacher who was taught the same year 19 times. I haven't actually improved over, over 19 years. And neither approach to CPD really works, uh, and both of them just store up these problems of badly implemented ideas that then become warped and, and changed over time because people haven't really understood the theory behind their practice.
1: And I think the other thing is if we are delivering poor CPD, we get that issue where people become really disconnected mm-hmm. to it. And so we, we're back, we know, oh, no, we're going to have to sit in a hall to listen to another um, session that doesn't really relate to me. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with it. Maybe someone will come around with a clipboard and I'll do, you know, pay a lip service when they do. And we don't want that for the profession. We want professionals who are able to reflect on their practice. We want people who can adapt because we know things are really static in schools, so however much we would love them to be, you know, much more stable. And so um, those poorly delivered CPD sessions. I just kind of add into that problem and, and i see people all the time and they're wonderful teachers wonderful people but they go oh you know here we go another cpd session another you know lecture on why this is going to be important and hopefully in a, in a month's time everyone will forgotten about it anyway and i'll carry on doing what i was going to do and so we, we get stuck and really good cpd can stop that happening and, and keep that development going because that's that's what we want you know. Every teacher wants to see their students improving and, uh, and wants to see that happening. But if the CPD is not right, then it, it's in a way rather
0: well than support it. No, it certainly does. So we're now going to kind of dig a little bit deeper. I love that about um, you mentioned, I think it was Captain that like, graph about we get better in the first five years. And I love what you said, Mark, about if, if I'm just doing the same things for 19 years, you've only really got better in one year, and then that's difference difference what you said there Zoe about the, the impact it can have on students if we get it right for the 50 or so teachers it can then impact on the thousands of students so really good messages there so we're now going to go into a bit deeper about the cpd curriculum and and how do we decide on the intent of our cpd curriculum and, and map the route
2: um well first of all you you need to know what it is that you really want to achieve you to think very carefully about What's holding you back? What is it that you want to achieve as a school and why aren't you there? Now, Do you have a problem where pupils' outcomes aren't what you would like them to be? Do you have an issue with poor and disruptive behaviour? Um, do you have a problem that pupils aren't motivated to take charge of their own learning? What is it that's holding you back? And once you've identified what the problem is, you can then look for a range of potential solutions. So you can go to something like the Great Teachers Toolkit, so you can look at the EEF. Or you could look at, you know, a range of published research papers or books on the, pro- whatever it is, you can kind of then go oh, and find the things which might help to address the problem. But you just need to be very, very clear that this is the issue first um, and then think, OK, how do we solve it? Rather than thinking, this looks like an interesting solution. Now, let's see if we can find a problem it can address. And I think that's, that's, the, that's the mistake that a lot of people make.
1: And I think when you're building that intent and understanding the problem, it's um, getting lots of different viewpoints that really helps that as well. So you might have identified as a problem as lead of teaching and learning in your school, but actually is that really the issue? And digging down with your teachers, your middle leaders, and other people to so really, as you say, make sure that this, this is the issue, this is the thing that's preventing us doing all those wonderful things we want to do, and, and really hearing what that might be um, from those different angles.
0: Certainly, I like that, that what you said there about, kind of, what is, what do you need to improve? And I like what you mentioned there, there's so much research out there, and, and Zoe, you mentioned there, kind of, looking around you and and finding what's out there rather than I think what what you said, here's a great solution. What is it the answer for? I think that Mm. often happens. And I think what often happens as well is that we put on CPD without kind of knowing the intent and what we actually need. We just put it on because it, it sounds good, it looks good, and that's probably why it has no impact. Which leads on to ask, what content should we include in our CPD curriculum? Well, that's going to come back
1: again to what is the issue you're trying to address um, and really pinning that down and, and making sure that that solution that you think might be the answer is there. And, and then there's got to be an element where people can understand what that actually means and get that shared understanding together. And then you've got to think about how you're going to go through that process of learning. And I think it, you know, that's been an area which... We've generally, or certainly I, you know, can think back to some of the CPD I've delivered, I've not been particularly good at because it really does need to be the same kind of process that we would use with students. So we want to have that clarity of explanation. We want to um, give people the opportunity to discuss it and explore it and apply that learning. And I suppose that's really where the cold cycle comes in, um, really powerfully for me.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So you, you want to make sure that. Well, when you think about the content of your curriculum, you're thinking very carefully that delivering the content is not the end point. And again, I think this is a mistake we sometimes make. We think, okay, what should be on our CPD curriculum? So, you know, if we go back to the example before, okay, so we want to improve um, pupils' ability to study effectively. So we're going to do lots of kind of study skills. We're going to teach teachers how to teach study skills so make sure they're aware of what effectively it looks like. And so, Okay, so my CPD curriculum is going to have a session in the hall where we do this, and then I'm going to do another session with a few teachers on this, another session with a few teachers on that. But actually, the content of the CPD curriculum is the input of new information, but also then the time to think how do I apply this in my context and to sit down and come up with a plan about, well, how do I use this next week in my lesson? And then to have the chance to actually try it, preferably with somebody else to come and view you doing it, you kind of experience it. And then you have the chance to reflect on And that time again, built in to sit and discuss and reflect should be in the curriculum, that is part of the curriculum. It it can't be a a kind of an afterthought. So when we consider the content of our curriculum, it isn't just the input of new information, it's the the application and reflection and feedback that goes alongside it in the same way we did in the classroom with our pupils. We thought about what should be the content of the lesson. Well, it isn't just the information I'm going to present, it's the activities, the reflection, the feedback, the peer discussion as well. That's the content.
1: And that's where I think things like the uh, teacher learning communities can be really effective because each of those are kind of planned in a way to provide those opportunities. So you'll get that kind of content, that shared understanding of what the problem is that we're trying to address, um, the things that we're going to look at, some ways that you could explore that, and then that time to sit down, and as you say, plan it. How am I going to apply this? Take it away. Try it out. Come back and explore that further. And it, and that real kind of iterative way of doing it. It isn't just a session. Off you go. Finished. done, um, We've done that now. We've done this. Um, we've done this. We've done that. It's it's really about giving people that opportunity to refine their practice as well. Um, you know, I'm I'm a big fan of, of avoiding that deficit model. It's not that people won't necessarily know this or do this. It's about how we can build on what they're already doing well and and to kind of refine those tools that they've got available to them.
0: I definitely like that idea of building what they already do well and refining that. And and like what you you say, Mark, this idea of the teacher learning being the same as as the student learning and that we we allow them time to discuss, reflect. And we've seen there about application. And then you mentioned teacher learning communities. I think I've been there a few um, in the past and they're a great place to, to reflect on, on what happened in my classroom, how I tried it and then get feedback from your, your colleagues and how to make that better. And it, and it comes to this idea, I, re- I was really fascinated by the, the writing on whether we should consider novice and expert teachers. Can you speak to that idea a little bit about the difference between a novice and an expert teacher? A lot of the
2: research there um, comes from David Berliner, who's written some fascinating papers on expert teachers. And he looks at kind of what, what made the difference between the two. And one of the big different characteristics is that an expert teacher has got a really well-developed schema about their professional uh, way of working. So they know if, if something happens in the classroom or people disruptive, they haven't got to stop and think, how should I deal with this? Because they've got a tried and tested way of doing it. And what this means is that if there is a problem to address, an expert teacher is more likely to be able to find a solution. It might take longer to get to it because they've got so much stuff to think about in terms of what might make a good solution to this problem. But the problem is, because they've got these automated ways of doing it, they're much more likely, even if they're given some new information, to just revert to the way they've always done. Even if logically they know what they've heard would be better, and they go, oh, no, I can see that. that would be better if I ask questions in this way. They'll just go back to asking the questions the way they have hundreds of times before, because it's, it's just their schema kicks in and off they go. Whereas a novice teacher is going to struggle much more to find their own solution. But they're also going to benefit much more from being told this is a good way to do it. You go and try it because they'll be able to do so. So what this suggests in terms of CPD is that for novice teachers, you want kind of a more mentoring approach where you're told, here is a good solution, but then give them an opportunity to go and think about it and try it. Whereas an expert teacher would be better off saying to them, okay, what do you think a good solution would be? A more kind of coaching model. You come up with a solution, and then we will put things in place to help make sure that you start doing it. So, peer observation or something, or video lessons, or you know, so a little mic, and they're going, you're doing it again, stop doing it again, you know, so they can catch themselves. Mm. But you need those two different approaches, putting your, your early careers teachers and your grizzled old campaign of the back of the staff <laughs> in the same school hall for the same CPD will benefit neither group because you need to address them differently.
1: Yeah, well, I've, I've, you know, I've worked with um, kind of early career teachers at the moment, but equally I'm working with people that have invested their own time in the um, Charters college program and uh, just looking at the kind of differences in the way that I, I approach them and how they then approach their own learning it's really interesting and, and I think that point about the videoing that was something that uh, those really experienced teachers
0: found they got an
1: awful lot from they kind of sat and really reflected and they hadn't had that opportunity to perhaps reflect in that way um, before and and it's made a big difference to their learning but They've been very much in control of it because they have got a lot of those answers there and the solutions there. Um, but they also need so they, they need a structure in order to do that. But it's going to be perhaps a different structure than what we might use if we were working with somebody taking their first steps into
0: career. No, definitely, it's, it's fascinating that that difference that you spoke of and what can what can help one teacher and help the other. We need to be a little bit more responsive to the needs of, of teachers, just like we would be echoing back mm-hmm. again to the. The needs uh, of our of our students i find that i find that very very fascinating so i think it's important that we as a, as a when you're working in schools to kind of identify who are your expert teachers and, and who are your novice teachers and then kind of support them in, in different mm-hmm. ways and i love what you said about the, the video the video feedback for your expert teachers could really help them and, and drive it we're doing some video feedback um, uh, and,
1: and utilize that expertise as well so you know, they've got a wealth of experience and knowledge that they can share as well and that's not to say that um, those new to, to the profession haven't got a lot of knowledge but what they won't necessarily have is that experience to put it together so you know, in the right environment you can really utilize those those areas um in a good way
0: no certainly certainly can. So thank you thank you for that i love that that kind of difference between novice and expert and the different ways that we can we can work with them. We're going to come back to something you mentioned earlier about Colb's uh, experiential learning cycle. So when implementing whole school CPD, you're right that you, you always come back to best bets. And what are the best bets for whole school implementation? And why do you think colb's experiential learning cycle is second to none as a planning approach to CPD? I think it helped
2: to resolve that problem that I mentioned earlier, that we've had these two different ideas about CPD. Fred Paul talks about this kind of a personal development one and personal development two. So Personal development one is where you just give lots and lots of theory, but people never get the chance to um, apply it. And professional development two is where you say it's fine, just give them lots of experience of teaching and they will develop, but they have no time to reflect on that. What CALD does is it, is it ties those two different things together and resolves each one's problem. So it says, okay, you might start with an input of information. You might get everyone together in the hall and give them something new to think about, focusing very much on the theory. But then you have the time for the um, kind of active experimentation. Okay, you now plan what you want to do with this information. Then you follow it with that experience. People try it in the classroom. They, They do the experience that we're hoping people will learn from. But then they have the time to reflect on it before returning to the theory to see does their experience match what they were told in the theory so you're combining theory and experience on kind of one dimension and you're you're combining the kind of active experimentation forming a hypothesis with the reflection about the conclusions that you should reach so you're kind of going through a cycle of professional inquiry and the reason I like cold is it was designed for vocational learning. The thing that Cole was interested in was how do people learn on the job? And as teachers, that's what we're doing. It is vocational learning. We're learning as we teach, or at least we are, if we put those different steps in.
1: And I think that word hypothesis is uh, one that I'm really liking more and more in terms of what we're doing in education and where we're kind of setting up CPD for people, because we don't have answers necessarily. We only do have those best bets. But approaching things with a hypothesis, an idea, I think this may well, and let's explore that together and let's look at it from different dimensions. That's got a lot of potential. Um, And and again, you know, that's certainly a a way that we know that practitioner inquiry works, that again, is having a real impact on the outcomes of students.
0: Certainly does. I like that terminology But you said there about, I think this may well work. Let's explore that together. And I think that what Cobb cycle does, you mentioned earlier about going away to, to practice and refine and, and discuss. And I think that's the missing, for me, a lot of the time, that's been the missing piece in, in my CPD because it's been theory given to me, but then no return, no back coming back to it for that. And I've tried that in my classroom. This is what I th- thought I would find. This is what I did find. This is how I'm going to refine it. And I think that's a, a really good missing piece, so thank you. And kind of bringing that all together then, how do we get go back to and deliver effective whole staff CPD sessions? I think
2: you need to think about the implementation. Um, and so for the kind of the delivery of the session, you need a pedagogy. And we can use some andragogy for teaching adults, which I'm be very excited about, that's fine. But it's not hugely dissimilar to the pedagogy that we would have for, for the learning of teenagers. You know, our minds aren't that different between, between those points. And so you want to think about, well, if you wanted to teach pupils something, then you give them short inputs. You don't just give them an hour of non-stop information. You give opportunities for reflection, opportunities for application, opportunities for planning of how you're going to do something. You think about how you're presenting the information. You make sure that you're actually good at explaining things. Not everyone is good at explaining ideas. And some people who deliver CPD, they can't do it. Sometimes it's a lack of their own subject knowledge. They just don't know enough about the topic to effectively deliver CPD on it. They've got a passing acquaintance with the theory, but it's not deep enough. In the same way, teaching outside your specialism is really hard. They just don't know enough. So you need to have that good subject knowledge. Your explanation is crisp. You need to think about how much information is on a slide, using things like dual coding with images and diagrams to support what you're saying. So so it it sticks in people's heads, using stories because Dan Willingham points out we remember stories better. We are kind of predisposed to remember stories. So any of those things that you use to help teach children, you can use to help make your CPD input more memorable.
1: And I think when you say stories, I think things like those kind of anecdotes from the classroom so that people can see how this might work. So we're very keen on using things like case studies to get, again, that range of voices and, and bring in, well, actually, this is what it looks like. This is all the theory. But this is what it looks like if you try to do it in your schools um, and I, I, but I also think one of the biggest challenges coming back to that novice expert is that you've got a room that's got a huge range of prior knowledge, you know, if we're thinking differentiation for our classrooms and what we would do with our students who might have gone through a scheme of work from year seven in, in your school up to year 11, you know, and you think about the teachers their different subjects and their different experiences that they're bringing to that um I, so i do think it's important to be aware of that and, and that kind of difference when you're starting off a, a kind of whole session and maybe starting off with that bit of retrieval um opportunities to reflect so that everybody knows where they're at to start um i don't think you can ever totally resolve it but it's a starting point
0: i, see, I love that idea of applying what we're we're doing a classroom to the whole staff, and we're going to come back to a little bit more subject-specific stuff that I think um, provides some of the answers there. And um, we've already mentioned practitioner inquiry, and up here in Scotland, practitioner inquiry is huge. It's part of our um, teaching standards. It's written in there now. Um, so, how do we get practitioner inquiry right? And Mark, you're out in the book that you did a bit of your own, and can I ask you to share a little bit about that, please? Yeah, so I think one thing that helped
2: to make our success, because I've seen a lot of bad practitioner inquiry, and I think the thing that made a big difference for us was that it was done under the auspices of the Institute for Effective Education, based out of York University, which sadly has now closed, um, we were the, kind of the last year through, but they would provide funding for schools to run small-scale research trials, and the thing that then worked for us is what we really kind of went through the kind of CPD curriculum that we talk about in the book. So we thought, well, what problem do we have that we would use this funding to help resolve? And we'd had a lot of CPD and lots of discussion on retrieval practice. And I've written about retrieval practice. I'm a big fan of retrieval practice, but actually, there's not much literature on how it applies in geography and in history in particular. There's lots on maths, it's easy to test, not much on my subject. So we thought it might be interesting to look at whether retrieval practice really makes a difference in terms of meaningful learning, do they become better geographers or historians from doing retrieval practice? So we set up this trial and working with this kind of outside university, this this outside body meant that we could really have a dialogue about how to set out the research parameters, how to uh, reliably collect data, how we could make sure that our findings were going to be valid, rather than just kind of rushing in and going, right, we're going to do a study, half the kids will do this, half the kids will do this, test them at the end and see how they did, and then get findings which would then just be kind of bunk. So we, we kind of had that outside help, but I think that's important. I think we need to be working with our universities much more closely to have this kind of relationship if we want to get a more research-informed profession. So that helped. So we kind of just carried out, carried out a trial, we had classes that were retrieval practice, classes that weren't, and then we could compare their results at the end. And then we could have some help from them in analysing, so looking at things like effect sizes, but also looking at why perhaps some of the impacts that we found were there. You know, why did we find that in geography it had a much greater impact than it did in history? Why did we find that it actually seemed to have a much greater impact on our non-pupil premium uh, students than those with pupil premium? We could kind of then unpick it and get those kind of expert eyes on it, which made it very useful, and it changed our practice as a result. So in terms of transformative CPD, which as Zoe says only 1% of CPD is transformative, this has transformed the way that we do retrieval practice um, in our two departments and increasingly across our school. So it changes things. But I, I think it, it's that link. If we want practitioner inquiry to be more than just, I have a feeling about something, let me try and find out if I'm right, which is what it often is. You know, I think I'm really right about this, let me go and do it. I'm not sure much in academia is that much better, but. I think we want our practice need to be better than that. We need to have a really clear kind of hypothesis and a way of testing it and a way of finding out if we are wrong. Mm-hmm. And we need to kind of start off by saying kind of a null hypothesis. You know, I will be wrong if my data tells me this, and then I will have to look again, rather than, you know, mm-hmm. I think it would be better if kids all played games in class. Let me prove that I'm right. It, it's just a bit sad so good quality practitioner inquiry linked to universities that's a bit more rigorous and has a null hypothesis I would say is what what we really need.
1: What I really loved about uh, what i gone on in your uh, particular inquiry was uh, the difference between geography and history and that's why I thought it was so important to go in there because it is highlighting that point actually we learn where things don't go the way that we're expecting as much as if they do go the way than we might have been expecting, or, or produce that excellent result we're going for, and uh, just highlighting the differences between what was going on with geography. History, and history had been much more rigid, hadn't they? They'd really stuck to the brief. Um, absolutely, whereas geographers, who like to do their own thing, uh, <laughs> they've gone in a slightly different direction, but it produced something which was even more rich to explore and and evaluate and think about well how can that now be applied to history and all the other subjects in your school.
0: Mm. Definitely I love that idea of that collaboration with universities I mean there's so many universities and and I'm sure the universities will be delighted to to work with so I know in Scotland we've got a few uh, researchers that would probably love that so if you're listening why not contact the university Mm -hmm. they would bring that Bit of rigor around the research and, and make it a little bit more resist, robust and we'll be able to learn a few things about about research in the classroom as well so thanks, thanks so much for sharing that Excuse me, we're now going to move on to, to this idea of coaching and um, specifically instructional coaching because it's gained a lot of traction and you've got a wonderful case study in the book from mm. uh, jack to Vaseline marsh who i've had on the podcast previously talking about instructional coaching but can I ask, why, why is coaching a powerful way to support rapid improvement with teachers?
1: I think it's that, that kind of entry point, isn't it? It's um, particularly if you're talking about working with um, early career teachers as well, it's it's coming in and supporting those changes um, at that really early stage before things become um, kind of automated and that becomes more difficult then to, to change those habits. It's really granular as well. You know, I can't talk about this as well as Jack does, even though I kind of went on the course that he was running as well. With but um, it's looking at things at a really granular level, and I think that's where it's been successful as well. So it gives you that opportunity, I suppose, in the same way that when we're looking at students and really forensically looking at their work and looking at what they know and, and that they can do. Um, it gives us that opportunity to, to do that. And to really break down those steps so why is that part successful? What, what is it that's, that's um, going on there that might make a difference? How might you just make those slight adaptations, which are going to allow you to do something differently at this point? Um, and I think, we, you know, we've used coaching for a number of years with really experienced staff. And, and the thing, you know, the point that Mark made there earlier is you may not start off by saying, I think you should try this because we know they've got the answers and they've got the solution. So you, your approach might be slightly different, but really kind of unpicking with people at that level is, is certainly something that I didn't have until much later in my career. And, and I think we could all benefit from that um, and having that supportive reflection. So yeah, I, I know that lots of people are having huge success with, with that particular approach.
2: Um, yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I think... I think... Uh, there's something in, if we go back to kind of pupil learning, and this kind of Dylan William quote, you know, um, the question isn't what works, because everything works somewhere. And I think there's probably an element of that with coaching, that, that what really works is the fact that you take some time to tell someone you're important, and I'm going to work with you. And to be honest with you, once you've done that, I do kind of wonder how much of a difference it makes what you do in that time. If you take someone aside and say, I think but you're really important. You're worth an hour of my time to sit and talk. And you're going to have this time to reflect on what you're doing and to think about the way that you teach and why you teach in that way and, and, and to ask answer those questions that you never get the time to pause for the rest of the year. That's going to make a difference. Yeah. And so there's lots of different coaching models, and all of which seem to be effective. I think they're all effective because they all essentially involve taking time with a person. Yeah. And that's powerful.
1: I do have to say something slightly (laughs) controversial.
2: What's controversial about coaching works? But I don't think you're obsessed about the nature of the coach. Yeah, absolutely. And you've got brilliant basic coaching model, or the instructional coaching, which you've taken off, or
1: they're they're all effective. And I think it's something that um, Michael is hearing us about with um, with interventions. It's like, is it the intervention for a student? Is it it the intervention that's taking place that's making this huge difference? Or is it the fact that you've taken that student and you've sat down with them and, you, as you say, taken all that time? And it's very hard to isolate whether it is the, the, the thing itself and, and what you're trying to do the self or the fact that they are there in that a special environment with that person talking about that thing that is having the impact. Um, so, yeah, it's an interesting one. I don't, I don't think we can sort of pull that apart yet, but I'm sure there's lots of research on its way to, to looking at that.
0: It's certainly interesting, and I, and I certainly have the feeling that Mark could be, could be right there. And Going back to earlier on about having the time and space to reflect, if, if someone's working one-to-one with you and devoting that time and, and really focusing on your development and prioritizing you and your students' learning, then everything's going to accelerate a little bit. We're now going to go back to something we mentioned earlier about subject-specific CPD. So how, how can departments provide meaningful subject-specific CPD? they can do
2: much the same as schools do. So you start by thinking, what's the problem in my department? And then your biggest thing to try and do as a head of department is to claw back time for that. So thinking about your department meeting time and going, right, what can I get rid of that's not developmental? You know, all of the kind of admin, organizing the open evening, doing the exam analysis, what can get pushed onto email? And then can we use this time to say, okay, We know as a department, we need to work on our subject knowledge about changing theories on plate tectonics. Where can we find the information for that? Who here is already an expert in that? Did someone focus their degree on that? Or do we need to get an an outsider? Perhaps we need to team up with other local schools and and get someone from outside from the local subject association to come and work with us and provide some kind of external support. Is there a free course we can sign up from from universities? There's loads and loads of these things being offered now. Can we get on one of those? So you have to kind of look around for your input and not assume that as head of department, it's your job to always produce that or to provide that yourself, but to look for a genuine expert in that area who can address the gap that you've got.
1: Well, I think in a similar vein, with pedagogy as well, I was looking at that, I was working with the school today, and uh, one of the things, things they're really focusing on is note taking with their students. Note taking, and then leading into revision, and how that would that would work. And they've gone for a Cornell note model. And uh, although they've had an initial session about well, what is it, Uh, they've shared some reading around it. Their next step is they are going to go through that modeling, what it looks like, process together. Um, And through that, they're really going to support each other in developing what it is that they want the students to be able to do with this. Um, So they can avoid those these mutations, so they can make sure that everybody's got that shared understanding. And it's also an opportunity, and I don't quite know how they're going to focus it yet, if they're focusing on an area of subject knowledge, then they could use that as a vehicle for that as well. Um, so that makes that time use smart. But, uh, yeah, I think I think the challenge of having the time together, we know that that's something that, that subjects do struggle with. But then that, that's, you know, the leaders, when they're looking and they're thinking about what is it your source needs, perhaps it's fewer of those sessions where everyone's together in the hall and more of those sessions where everyone's together within their subject or within their phase as well. Um, you know I, know, I talk to a lot of primary teachers as well and... Uh, getting the time for their subjects in primary school is a huge, huge challenge. Um, but I think that's worth pulling together the hubs, drawing together local groups, and making sure that's really valued as well from a leadership level is really important.
0: It certainly is. And I like what you said there about ideas about subject associations, your, your local hubs and so on, because you get some departments that, that are quite small, so it's pulling on all those different kind of uh, levers to, to really help you uh, and focus on. So thank thank you very much for that. Um, my final question to do with the CPD curriculum then is: is we've spoken about kind of Cobbs' experiential learning cycle. That CPD curriculum have an intent, what content should be focused on, what you need, practitioner inquiry, coaching, and, and subject-specific CPD. Can I ask then how important is a value in the impact of, of the CPD curriculum that you put in place? Well, I'll, you
1: know, with any curriculum, we, you know, it's only as valuable as what's learned from it so if it's not bringing about that change then we're back to square one aren't we we're back to you know cpd doesn't have an impact. impact why are we having to be involved with this so you need to have that time to evaluate it um but how you evaluate that and um, it needs to be down in steps and stages so um, any more than we say to students like right, we're doing history course i'm going to evaluate how well it's gone at the end when you've sat your GCSEs or A levels you go through an incremental stages and, and I think you do this at stage one, don't you? You really think about, well, what do I want it to look like? What is this change again that we're going for? And that's what you can evaluate it against. And you go step by step, week by week. What's it going to look like? What's it going to look like next term? What's it going to look like in six months time? And that's really um, where you're going. And, and so planning that evaluation and perhaps being brave if it's not going in the direction that you want it to go in, actually saying, well, we need to stop, we need to pause and consider going back to that first question, are we addressing what we wanted to address by going this way? And, and that can be hard when you've invested a lot in it as well.
2: Yeah, I think you need to think about the, the different sources of information that tell you if you're on the right path. So there's always a temptation to look you know, improving outcomes in terms of exam results, is, quite natural, is what schools end up being judged on and held accountable for. But in the short term, you might just see things like on a learning walk, it's like different in the way that teachers are doing something. And you know, if you said, we have an issue with these teaching or revision skills, well maybe over the next week or two, you start to notice on a learning walk that that's improved. Perhaps you do a student survey before you begin and students report that they how they're revising. And you notice that they're just you know, rereading their notes and highlighting and things. But then a, a month into this, they started saying, Well, actually, we now do these methods. Um, maybe do some student interviews as well. Maybe you talk to staff and say, OK, what's your understanding of effective revision? So it's just kind of not just relying on some kind of big thing. Because the problem with the big things, so I say the exam results, is well, many things could have changed then. Perhaps in the five years since you started this program, you know, the year seven all the way through, the cohorts changed. Maybe the exams changed. Maybe there was COVID. You know, there's all these things that happen mean that you don't end up really evaluating what's worked. So kind of small incremental steps, as Zoe says, just means that you've got lots of ways of just checking in. Is this going in the direction that we want? Otherwise, yeah, you get to the end and go, well, oh, maybe it worked. We think that it worked. We'd like to think that it worked,
0: but you're never going to know. Definitely. It's being very precise in, in what you want to see week by week, month by month. And if you're not seeing that, like you say, Zoe, how do you How do you change tack and go back a little bit and find out, well, maybe we don't need to address this, we need to address this. Um, so that brings us to the end of the, of the interview section. A wonderful exploration of, of some of the themes in the CPD curriculum. But before we go on to the to my new quickfire questions that I've got for you, um, can you please share with the listeners where they can buy the book and where they can contact you? you can buy the book from all good retailers but especially amazon or the publishers crown house it'd be
2: nice if you've been stopped in Smiths, but you're often disappointed so amazon or crown house would be a good place to buy any of our massive back catalogue of books and then we're very very easy to find on twitter so at enter mark and at rebo runner we're always there it's amazing we're not on it now to be honest
1: <laughs>
0: they would be very worried about us i think <laughs> certainly a lot a lot a lot of value and a lot of value in your writing so thank you so much so I now have um, new quickfire questions for the return of the, of the podcast so I'll ask you both the same questions so I'll, I'll start with Zoe first so um Zoe what are you reading currently? um, well, which
1: one you want? <laughs> um I'm currently reading I suppose uh, the mad woman in the Attic or rereading it uh, the Gilbert and Gubar, um because I'm preparing for my dissertation year. For my uh, masters in Victorian literature and history, um, but I'm also reading my Dark Vanessa and various other things as I pick um, up as I, as I encounter them. But that's my that's my big chunky read of the moment.
0: Right, thank you so much. And Mark, what are you reading currently? I am
2: currently reading um, The Wild Beyond the Witchlight, the new Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> <laughs> adventure, which I'm very excited about. Uh, and I'm reading Harry Fletcherwood's new book on
0: uh, making successful habits in students, which is an excellent read. Brilliant. Thank you so much for, for sharing that wonderful insights into, into what you read. Um, second question then, Zoe, is, is what is your current professional development focus?
1: I'm a bit obsessed by assess- uh, assessment at the moment. Um, I'm really interested in how we can do that effectively in English. So I'm exploring lots of different ways with that and and i've also got that that wonderful luxury of talking to lots of different departments about their approaches as well um and i don't think i've got any answers yet there's lots of hypotheses that uh, i'm exploring but yeah that that's the thing that i don't feel that i got right and i don't think i am necessarily getting right so that's what i'm looking at and everything from kind of the formative to the summative
0: right thank you i look forward to to um... (laughs) Reading what you what you find because I'm sure you'll you'll share that as part of your Be right. So thank you. Uh, and Mark, what is your current professional development focus? Uh,
2: pupil motivation, looking at the drivers behind that and uh, how we can
0: utilise them. Right, thank you. Links back to the the habits of success book with, with Harry Fletcher Wood. Uh, and my final question to you both is, Zoe, what do you love most about being a teacher and teaching? <laughs>
1: I think I really love the challenge. Um, it, it's it's so different all the time. um There's something new to think about. There's something new to engage with. There's new people's responses and reactions, and interactions. And I think you know that's what you know. I can't say that over the twenty-something years there was ever a moment where I thought, oh, you know, this is just boring. Challenging and difficult and problematic and sometimes frustrating but it certainly was never boring and uh all of the people involved in it make that as well
0: certainly thank you so much for sharing it and i totally agree with it with the idea of the of the the, the constant challenge and, and it's so engaging um, and mark um, what do you love the most about being a teacher and teaching
2: well i'm a geography teacher
0: <laughs> geography I mean,
2: I know people who teach other subjects have to find something else enjoyable. My subject is inherently amazing.
0: So, geography.
1: <laughs>
0: Certainly. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. And, I, and, and I'd highly recommend. I, I read probably the only non subject specific, I'm a PE teacher, and I read your Making Every Geography Lesson Count. And I took so much from that <laughs> from reading that <laughs> I couldn't quite believe that I was reading a geography book going, Yeah, this is brilliant. So, thank you so much. Excellent. And, and thank you both so much for. For again writing another fantastic book and for coming on to talk about it with me of an evening for becoming educated so thank you so so much
1: you're very well
0: thank you thanks for listening to this episode of becoming educated as ever i would be delighted to hear your thoughts and you can contact me via twitter at dn leslie or via email so that you don't miss out i urge you to subscribe to the podcast and while i have your attention Why not submit a review of the podcast wherever you get yours from so that many, many others can access Becoming Educated. I'll be back next week with another episode of Becoming Educated and I do hope to see you there.